Welcome to the Everything Pod, where we talk about anything and everything. This week, we're discussing the current state of the nation. I'm joined today by Arkansas State Senate District 1 candidate, Mrs. Renetta Francis. How are you doing today, Mrs. Renetta? I am doing well, Rhea. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for joining us. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your platform? Oh, absolutely. So I am a resident of Arkansas. I've been here for a little over 13 years. Um, my background is in employment law and corporate ethics. So I've been an attorney for close to 30 years. And uh, I've also, I've worked for the government. I've worked for private practice, primarily in the realm of, of employment law, but also in ethics and compliance worked for a Fortune One company in that capacity. And for the past three years, I've started my own consulting firm, focusing on executive coaching and leadership development and a little uh, human resources consulting. And I uh, entered the race for State Senate last October because I really felt that there was a need for more diverse representation uh, within the State Senate as well as making sure that the citizens of Northwest Arkansas knew that they had a voice and a choice as it relates to who represented them in the Senate. My platforms include very, I, I would say, um, bridge gapping type issues. So they're not really divisive and, and polar on purpose because the goal is how do we build bridges? That's my whole Focus. So when you're thinking about what are some of the things that are important to all Arkansans, is access to affordable health care, investing more in our education to ensure that our teachers are equipped and prepared to provide the educational instruction for our scholars so that they can be as equipped and prepared to be competitive in the marketplace. So those are some of my key issues, as well as diversifying our economic engines, making sure we have strong infrastructure. And and, and also there's a fo focus on diversity and inclusion, being a, uh, building a much more inclusive Northwest Arkansas across Arkansas. So those are some of the key pillars that uh, we built, uh, are building our campaign on. And we've, you know, um, attracted a lot of attention. There's a lot of energy surrounding the campaign because there's new energy. There's a new uh, passion as it relates to engagement in the political process and making sure that uh, voices are heard. I think that's great, especially as Arkansas, like I've lived here my whole life and it's getting more diverse and I'm seeing new different people every day. And I think those people need a voice instead of the ones who've been Absolutely. here forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why, um, you know, I feel like this is a really uh, opportune time for my particular candidacy. You're right, Rhea, the, the, the uh, region has changed so much since you've been here, since I've been here. It is tremendously much more diverse. And with that comes different perspectives, different thoughts, different values, different, different ideals, different priorities. And so who represents those, we have a choice as to who we send to Little Rock to represent us. That's fantastic. So in your little spiel, of course, you mentioned diversity quite a bit. And I'm sure 
that has affected your life not only and the way our world is turning at this moment with the Black Lives Matter protests and all the things happening, people are getting exposed for their racism and the lack of diversity in their space and their bubble and that things need to change. So what is your formal yes. stance on the things that are happening? Well, I'll say this um, for your Listeners who may not know or be aware, I am an African-American woman, a black woman. I grew up in the South, in Alabama, and I've always lived in the shadows of uh, or, or, or propelled by the civil rights movement. So the work that I did with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was enforcing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The work that I've done in corporate America dealt with ensuring equal opportunity across all of the millions of associates employed by this uh, uh, by this retailer. And so my stance is one that's not just political, but it's also personal as it relates to the value integrity of 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 black lives in particular and making sure that individuals have an opportunity to compete on a fair and equal setting, whether it's in the employment arena, whether it's housing, whether it's access to healthcare, whether it's education. Uh, my goal has always been to remove barriers that restrict uh, progress, that restrict movement, that restrict growth, that restrict production and, and productivity and profitability. And when we have systemic institutions in place that artificially suppress the progress of any one particular group, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that's challenging for me, just intrinsically uh, on a values-based level, I have a problem with it. So there's always been a, a fight, as it were, as it relates to how, as a professional Black woman, I show up in the workplace, how as a black mother, I raise my black daughters, what values I instill into them. How do I prepare them to, to compete when knowing that there may be certain uh, additional barriers, additional obstacles that they will have to face that you know weren't created by them, weren't created just for them, but they are subject to it. And so I think that the explosion of interest and activism that we've seen recently over the past couple of months is a, is a combination of a variety of factors. It's an evolution of this global community that we have. We are all so much more closely connected today through the internet, through technology, through so many other advances. Our world is so much smaller. And so we see each other as individuals. We feel each other's pain. We understand what it is to feel oppressed. We understand what it feels to feel, uh, be taken advantage of. Now, what's different now is that because we're also in the midst of a global health crisis, a pandemic, uh, where people have been required, requested, suggested to shelter in place, to stay at home, to limit their outside social activities, that limited the amount of distractions, the amount of other activities that we might otherwise be engaged in. So when the whole world saw the, the video of the murder of George Floyd, when the whole world saw how Ahmaud Aubrey was hunted down in the Georgia neighborhood and killed in the street, when the whole world heard about the police uh, 
killing of Breonna Taylor, I think the whole world had reached a boiling point that enough is enough. And a lot of people use, uh, not use, but uh, the George Floyd video was traumatic. It was, you, that was one where you actually saw the life ebb out of this man. And as he called out for his mother, it struck emotional and just intrinsic cores in so many people, regardless of race. And so that is what connects us as human beings, as the human race. And that is what I think is propelling uh, the movement now. What you see in every single state in this nation, there were demonstrations calling for justice, calling for peace, calling for equity, calling for the end of police brutality, calling for the end of systemic racism. Such unity is unheard of, uh, unprecedented in this country, let alone across the world. When I saw demonstrations in Paris and London and Germany and New Zealand, I wept because it just, it wasn't so much for me. It was just that other people recognize the value of human life. They recognize what it means to have that human life disrespected and disregarded. Absolutely. Simply for the color of the skin. Absolutely. It's definitely a wave of power and passion that has like found, people have found and it's become a revolution at this point, the way I see it. So, And what's so interesting about this revolution, Rhea, I don't mean to cut you no, off, yeah. is that in, in, in protests in the past or demonstrations in the past, there have been in uh, concentrated groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's a women's movement or a men's movement, or maybe it's something about a particular issue that causes one group of people to get engaged. But here we see millennials, we see Gen Zs, we see Gen X, we see baby boomers, we see different other groups, say LGBTQ groups, we see feminist groups, we see all types of organizations and groups rallying around this singular issue because it's unifying, because it is central to who we are. It's not just always one person's group is one person's issue or one group's issue. It's a human issue. For sure. Definitely. And that's what I think is so compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely like something I don't think the world has seen before. This type of I, I agree. I agree. So spontaneous, so organic, so just, uh, it's, it's very riveting. Mm-hmm. And it's so heartfelt. It's so heartfelt. But then so is the opposition to it as well, right? Yeah. So it's interesting to see, uh, you know, some of the knee-jerk reactions or some of the defensive reactions to what one would consider to be basic human kindness, human rights, human dignity. Absolutely. That's, it's definitely crazy to me to see people try and defend what has been happening or try and say that it's a thing of its time or it was one person's fault, but it's, definitely systematic and it's it's been happening for a long time the world is just finally waking up to it well parts of the world are waking up to it other parts have have been aware um and i think even those the folks that have been aware it's it's something else to be aware and it's something else to just uh feel that you have done all that you can do you have taken all that you could take and now is the time that you have said enough is enough and I think it's more than just an awareness or an awakening to it. It's mm-hmm. enough is enough. 
Absolutely. And as people rally around and they're all fighting for change, what does that change look like to you? Is it that through like legislation? Is that through different police tactics? Like what does that look like? Well, I think one of the words that you used earlier is a clue or a key to how change is going to happen. It's systematic. It's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. So throughout so many different of our social systems, there is uh there are racial undertones, there are racial intentions, there, it, it's, it's, it's intrinsic in so many of our systems. So when you start with something like uh, police reform, of course, let's start there, but that's not what it's you know, ultimately all going to look like because when we're talking about dismantling uh, systemic institutions, we're talking about educational systems, we're talking about financial systems, we're talking about housing systems, we're talking about looking at not just individualized situations, but how an overall system works and how it was created and what effect it has on different groups of people who benefits from it and how can we now look at uh, dismantling it such that you're providing equity across all groups to participate in this system. Definitely. I, I think it's not just one step or one piece of legislation. Oh, it's going to take time. Absolutely. For sure. It definitely will take time, but it, and it will also take a sustained energy mm -hmm. and interest because for the last two and a half, three weeks have been, you know, public demonstrations and displays of, of outrage, of anger, of passion. But at some point, the demonstrations are going to cease. At some point, all of the protesters or uh, those uh, individuals who are participating in these marches are going to go home. That's not the end of it. We need everyone who was uh, out on the street to be reaching out to their legislators to be consistently demanding of changes in systemic or systematic um, uh, challenges that impact so many of us in our everyday lives. We need people getting involved in their communities and staying involved in their communities to ensure that there, is, that there are diverse voices being heard, diverse, diverse perspectives being presented. We need to make sure that um, you're giving back to the organizations that support growth development um, and, and all of those things in, in helping to take care of one another in our communities. So there, there are a myriad of approaches. So you've got the legislative piece, making sure laws are changed. But the interesting thing is, even if you change a law, it doesn't change someone's heart. So how individuals impact change within their sphere of influence is one conversation at a time, one lunch at a time one cocktail hour at a time if you're too young for cocktail hours. But one, you know, one, you know, um, what high schoolers do, you know, one lunch period, one history class at a time when you see something or hear something that you know uh, doesn't align with that, speak up, use your own voice, regardless of whatever your platform is, to address it, to call it out. So often people are, reticent to speak up. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be labeled with a certain label. But now is the time to call it all out. Now is the time to say exactly, you know, just using your voice and not letting your silence um, 
make you complicit. Absolutely. Because there's a difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist. You know, I've heard people say, well, I'm not a racist. I don't do this. I don't do that. And that may all be true. But then take a look to see when have you corrected? What, what intentional, positive, affirmative acts have you taken to actually dismantle the system, to correct people, to, to further educate yourself and those around you about the experiences of others? How are you building your empathy towards another group of people who don't look like you, who don't speak like you, who don't love like you, who don't worship like you? What are you, know, what are you doing? And it's challenging for all of us. It's not one group preaching to another. It's, it's, a, it's a responsibility we all have as human beings to learn more about each other. Absolutely. And like these conversations, they can be so difficult and nobody really wants oh, yes. to have them, but like they create change and they'll improve the future for everybody. And you're right. These conversations are difficult. They are. Um, and that's why it's important to have them. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to start with relationships built on trust. When I come to you and ask you a question or start a conversation with something that maybe I just don't know, but I want to learn more about your culture. I want to learn more about your heritage. I want to learn more about uh, your ethnicity. And I'm not just saying you, but just the, the general you. Um, and we say we work together for years. There should be a level of trust, a level of understanding such that I won't be offended by you asking the questions. You won't be defen- defensive about the responses that are given. So we both have to be open to have it, um, have a clear exchange of information so that we can all grow from the experiences. Absolutely. So and with this being an election year on top of everything that's going on, how do you yes. think this election and people's vote can change the systematic oppression people face? Well, I think what what has become very clear is our elected officials um, have a tremendous amount of power in in delivering public policy. And if we are satisfied with the public policy that we've seen, then the votes will likely stay the same. However, with a lot of the demonstrations and a lot of the, the passion and energy, it demonstrates that folks are not happy with status quo. Folks want to see a change. Folks want to have different voices being heard, uh, more reflective of theirs, to address these public policy issues, to address these social issues, and not to be silent on them, not to to, you know, get along, you know, to, to get along, you know, and, and that happens so often. And what I've heard in a lot of different places is if these the elected officials are not uh, aligned with the will of the public, then they will be voted out. I've heard it many times. Oh, you say that now, but you do not represent what I represent. So, you, you know, we're going to band together to make sure that you're no longer in office. So as an as a aspiring elected official, I, I'm listening to that. I know that it is incumbent to make sure that you keep your ear to the ground and know what it is that your constituents are, are, uh, are demanding. And the truth of the matter is once you're elected, you're not elected to represent just this small subsection of the, the, the citizens within your region. You're elected to represent all. So you still have to look 
out for the good of the whole, regardless of if there's a certain group that helped to support to get you into office. Definitely. And it's not just federal elections or state elections. Local elections are just as important. Local elections. Local elections, quite frankly, Rhea, are probably even more important because they have the most immediate impact on your day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. So who who we elect for justice of the peace versus who we elect to city council, um, who we're electing as, as the chief of police and mayor has so much more of a bearing on our day-to-day lives than, say, the president of the United States. That's important, of course, but our day-to-day lives, politics is personal. And when we keep that in mind, we realize that every level of government, every level of the legislature is important. Absolutely. And to segue a little bit into our next topic, um, as you had mentioned earlier, we are going through a pandemic that mm-hmm. is really lasting a lot longer than anybody thought it would, I'm sure. But Right. Probably not. I mean, Dr. Fauci, I'm sure. Yeah, except <laughs> for the professionals. But... That's right. That's right. So how has your campaign been affected by COVID-19 specifically? Well, I will tell you exactly about my campaign, but then I'll preface it by saying that um, the challenges that I have experienced are not unique to my campaign Mm -hmm. because they're impacting all of us. So as we're thinking about sheltering in place, we're thinking about limiting our social interactions, we're thinking about social distancing, that has a tremendous impact on typical campaign activities such as hosting gatherings or, or, or handshaking or going out to different events to meet people, to greet people and to raise funds, right? Yeah. So when the, the pandemic hit and businesses started to close or to just they furloughed employees, some laid off employees, we had record numbers of people filing for unemployment. We had record numbers of people um, seeking assistance from food banks and other social services. That's not the time to ask anyone to make a donation to a campaign, right? Mm-hmm. That's not, and, and, and we did it. We made conscious, intentional decisions. That's not, and people don't want to hear about politics. So we stopped traditional campaigning. We didn't make the phone calls to, to, to inform people about the campaign. We did make phone calls to inquire about their well-being to see if there were uh, any needs that were outstanding that we could help assist with, but we didn't make the standard, hi, I'm calling from the Francis campaign and this is what she stands for. Can we have your vote? We did not do that. We did not do any fundraising. And so that put a tremendous halt in, in a lot of traditional activities. But one of the things that I did do as kind of a way to pivot was to host a weekly Uh, I guess you could call it a talk show almost, a segment called Coffee with the Candidate, because one of the things I had done before COVID hit was to have some different times in uh, coffee houses across the district to open them up to the people who live in the areas and give them an opportunity to meet me, for me to meet them, and to have an exchange conversation, exchange of ideas, for them to share what some of their concerns are, issues are, and just to, you know, get to know you kind of sessions. So since we weren't able to do that on a personal level, I did it through technology. And I started initially with just me sharing um, information about COVID-19, what I knew, what some of the resources were, what some of the statistics were. 
And then we started having, uh, instead of me being on every week, just me drolling on and on, we thought, okay, let's, let's invite other people and have a conversation and have more of a dialogue and exchange of information. And so that's what we did. And we were able to share vital information regarding tax implications for, um, for receipt of, of, of payments from the stimulus for the pandemic unemployment insurance. We talked about uh, other ways to get engaged and involved in the community. We talked about the educational impacts of distance learning and the impact it was having on teachers as students and parents. There were so many different topics that we that we tried to be very strategic as it relates to making sure the topics were relevant to what folks may be experiencing or questions they may have. So we made that switch and uh, it had kept us somewhat engaged with the community, hopefully. And that's one way that we're just letting people know that we're here and that we care. I think that's great. And it's definitely been interesting to see how so many different things that you're used to, like church or just hanging out with friends, how we've had to shift to it being digital or completely different from how we're used to living our That's lives. Right. That's right. We, we, we learned that we could catch up with friends that we haven't seen in a long time through technology, getting all of your girlfriends together for Zoom and, and like, oh my gosh, we haven't seen each other in years. And we were very strategic about doing that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have. But then as the quarantine continued, I, I've, I've learned this term when folks are zoomed out. They're, they're, you know, there's just a threshold for the number of artificial connections that people can can make or can tolerate. And so now there's really this strong desire, particularly for those that are a little bit more on the extroverted side, to get into contact with people, to make those human connections, to have the exchanges, you know, over coffee or you know, just across, you know, across the way. So there, there's really a pull and a, you know, and a push in that regard, making sure that we're staying safe, making sure that we're doing everything we can to stop the spread and the transmission of this virus, while also recognizing that there are needs for people to engage with others, to be social, to go out, to be active, to work, to have recreation. For sure. And like, as you said, people's thresholds, like they've, they're reaching them and they're ready for life to go back to normal, in quotes, whatever that is now. Whatever that is. We don't know what that, what, so I heard people refer to the quarantine time as the new normal because folks had to get adjusted to not going out and, and just, you know, sheltering in place. And as these uh, social and economic restrictions are being lifted and they're reopening the economy. We're also seeing um, corresponding spikes in positive COVID-19 cases, increased numbers of hospitalizations, um, which which kind of goes hand in hand, right? Because uh, I think some people think, oh, if the restaurants are open, then we are free to go and we don't need our masks because it's over. And those things aren't true. So the new normal, what does that really look like? Does that mean that Everyone has on masks out in public now. Does that mean, you know, that we will always be six feet apart from each other? Don't know. We don't know. Will we ever feel comfortable again walking up to a stranger and extending a handshake? 
will we feel comfortable embracing long lost friends? Um, I, I don't know. Definitely. And it's been interesting to see how different, like um, Benville Schools has slowly been releasing their plan for how we'll return to school next year. We're mm-hmm. expected to wear masks all the time and social distance as much as possible. No water fountains, no self-serve food. And then like lunch will be split 50-50 in the cafeteria and classrooms. Like they're making a lot of changes that I think a lot of students, especially like I'm going to be a senior next year, I'm gonna miss like just normal lunch with my friends and being able to sit next to them if I wanted to. Right, right. And you know, I've seen, okay, so this is a little uh, a little inside uh, knowledge. So since we've been quarantined and sheltering in place, you do a lot of exploring from technology. So I've discovered TikTok, right? Of course. And so there's this TikTok where, you know, they're demonstrating the, the variety of ways that people are wearing masks that are wholly inappropriate. So they can say they have the mask on, but they've got the mask below their their nose. They've got it all the way under their chin. They've got one, um, you know, ear exposed. So it's just hanging off of one ear. So there's, there's wearing a mask and then there's wearing a mask. So having these restrictions and how they're going to be enforced is going to be really critical to ensure that we're continuing to being, uh, we're continuing to be vigilant about our safety and our health and protecting others. Yeah, it's really interesting too, because I, of course, wear my mask and I'm careful and all that, but then I'll go out into public or into Walmart to get essentials and I'll see people just living their normal lives. And it's really, I don't know, it's kind of disappointing to me at least that people aren't scared or they're not, not scared, but like they're not taking this seriously and that they don't see it as a threat. It's it, it, it takes hitting home personally for uh, issues of this nature to really make an impact. Mm-hmm. And unless you um, experience it somewhere within your circle, it's kind of hard to grasp. And that's kind of how we are with just about everything in life. Once it becomes personal to you, then it becomes a priority. Then it becomes something that you can really pay attention to. There are others who have the ability to kind of internalize that. But for a lot of people, it's an abstraction. It's far removed. It doesn't really apply to me because I don't see it and no one I know has seen it. Yeah. But like there is a case, I think it was the the young ladies were in Florida and they were, I think, celebrating a birthday. And 16 of them went out to a, a bar to celebrate a birthday. All 16 of them tested positive for COVID-19 as a result of going out. They were, and so did so many other people who were in that establishment. And they admit they didn't have on their masks. They were standing close. They were doing all these things that the CDC has recommended that we don't do. And the, I think it was uh, Chris Cuomo who asked, why did you, you know, why were you out without your mask? And they thought, hey, since the facility establishments were open, we thought it was safe. And we just disregarded it because no one we knew was sick. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see people's reactions and how they prepare or how they don't prepare to these types right. of events. Um, Mr. Janot, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I really it's appreciate been you being pleasure. here. Where can people find you? Where can they support you? So absolutely. My website is www.com 
renettafrancis.org, and that's R-O-N-E-T-T-A-F-R-A-N-C-I-S.org. That's the website. I'm also on um, all the social media platforms, Renetta Francis for Arkansas is how you'll find me. So I hope that the listeners will look me up and go to the website and indicate their interest to volunteer, learn more about the campaign, of course. And if they want to be involved and want to have an outlet for a lot of the uh, civic energy that they have to, 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 to bring about a change, this is an opportunity to do so. Definitely. And I'll put your website in the podcast description as well. So it'll be there Perfect. if you want that. Perfect. Um, thank, thank you, you so much. And Rhea, let me just say this before we go. You are an inspiration to me. Oh, thank you. One of the things that I have learned and I just take away is watching younger people and seeing um, young folks like yourself uh, take the initiative and create things that, that didn't exist before. Ask the tough questions because you've asked me some really tough questions in the past and and just to and, and the expectation that you and your peers will hold me accountable keeps me on my toes knowing that you have an interest in what's going on around you and you're not just you know your head and your screen stuck in in a tech world and not really connecting with what's happening in the outside world is inspiring and gives me hope and I just know that there are so many others just like you who are just as engaged, just as as excited about what's going on in the world around them. So it gives me hope that our, our future is in terrific hands. Thank you so, so thank much. You. I really appreciate you recognizing that it makes all the, the work and the care worth it for sure. Absolutely. I didn't want to leave without making that acknowledgement. <laughs> thank you. And You're thank welcome. you guys so much for listening. As always, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Rhea Collins. Follow Mrs. Renetta. She's awesome. And have a great day. This has been an episode of the Everything Pod. Thank you so much.